proper preposition. I had to do a little going back to school and remember what a preposition was, right? We're going to talk about the freedom of religion, that preposition of. Before we gather next in this place of worship, the people of this great nation of ours will have had an opportunity to pick its representatives, state their position on various issues, and imply the direction they would like to see this nation taken. We live in a democracy, not a true democracy. It's a representative democracy where we, we cast our votes. We elect people that will represent us in the various branches of the government. This was all established by the Declaration of Independence and subsequent Constitution with its various amendments. This morning's message isn't a civic lesson, nor is it a political commentary. But we need to remember some of the principles of the Founding Fathers in order to understand the basic freedoms that we are privileged to enjoy or, or interpret or just to take for granted. This morning, we're going to talk about the concept of freedom of religion. It's spelled out in the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So we'll start there and then look at how an interpretation of a single preposition, the word of, can change everything a society interprets it to read other things like freedom from religion. Lastly, we'll turn to scripture for the truth, which is religion, rather religious faith, grants freedom. It was Albert Mohrabian, he's a researcher of body language, who first broke down the, the components of a face-to-face -face conversation. You've probably heard this before. He found that communication is 55% nonverbal, 38% vocal, and 7% words only, right? So it, it matters how you say things, and you're right. I love you, right? I'm, if I get my angry face and I put my, my hit, right? It, it, it has to match because so much of it comes out in more than just the words, but in our tone and our inflection and our body language. And, and this is where the idea of the, of the vast majority of communication is nonverbal. In fact, um, you know, it's, it's proposed that, that less than 10% of information is, is conveyed in spoken words. And it turns out that formula was developed with a specific purpose, and that is, you know, to, to understand and decipher a person's attitude. And according to this man who did this research says, when there are inconsistencies between attitudes communicated verbally and posturally, the postural component should, de should dominate in determining the total attitude that is inferred. What? If they don't match up, you look at the body language and what you know about this person. Is 90% of communication nonverbal? No, no, information is conveyed verbally. But in a face-to-face -face conversation, body language and facial expressions can have an incredible impact on how information is interpreted. Now, likewise, as we read one's words, there's a fair amount of interpretation that must take place. And in the absence of the faces and the verbal cues and, and some of those things, that there's a, a part of, of the key to understanding a person's intent is to know them. right? Know their spirit, know their, their beliefs and their thoughts. And this is why we study the character of God so deeply so that we can discern the message of his written word. What I know about God and why he would be saying this or why this is important that it's included in scripture, right? Now throw in the complexity of foreign languages, right? Bible wasn't written in English. Text that doesn't include punctuation, right? Was it a question mark? Is there a comma or something in there? Could change everything. And then of course the social cultural factors that may not even exist today. And we have a real challenge on our hands. It was kind of fun to go through the 23rd Psalm studying what these things mean about a shepherd and a sheep and understanding their value, importance, and role and responsibility. That it's not an insult to be considered the sheep, right? 
because you have a, a care for, a provider, a caretaker that will, will do everything in their power, including discipline you let, right? Beat you with a rod a little bit to make sure you're on the safe path. And so when you take these into consideration, it does create a challenge for us. Now, I'll say fortunately, maybe not fortunately, we don't have so many complications with the authors of the Constitution. It wasn't that long ago in the grand scheme of history. And the first amendment to the Constitution, or part of the Bill of Rights, provides that, I'm quoting, Congress make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting its free exercise. It protects freedom of speech, of press, assembly, and the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. It's big deal stuff. But I want to take a look at some of the quotes that reveal the character of the authors and signers of this important right so that we have an opportunity to better understand the intent of the freedom that it affords us. When James Madison spoke to Congress introducing the Bill of Rights, he said this. He said, the civil rights of none shall be abridged on account of religious belief or worship, nor uh, not shall any national, re national religion be established, nor shall the full and equal rights of conscience be in any manner or on any pretext infringed. Okay. Thomas Jefferson said, the constitutional freedom of religion is the most inalienable and sacred of all human rights. He wasn't just talking about as a nation. He says the freedom of religion is the most inalienable, right? The one that cannot be taken away and sacred. He also said, among the most inestimable of our blessings, right? Countless, right? This is how big this blessing is, of liberty, of the worship of our creator in the way that we think most agreeable to his will. A liberty deemed in other countries incompatible with good government and yet proved by our own experience to be its best support. It sounds like the freedom of religion is very important to these gentlemen. And supporting the statement is the opinion of George Washington. I like this. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Do not ever let anyone claim to be a true American patriot if they ever attempt to separate religion from politics. Now, we had a discussion this morning in our Bible study time about that. And we dove into a couple of verses just at a high level about the establishment of government as one of God's institutes for, for society and our responsibility to respect that authority and to follow it because it is supposed to be a servant of God for our protection, right, for our governance. So we, the Bible does tell us to follow the authority. And, and so we have to be careful with the separation and, and knowing that there is an intersection of these things. He also answers the question of how this could be done. He says, we are persuaded that good Christians will always be good citizens. Now, he didn't say Christians. He says good Christians, right? What is a good Christian? One who follows the commandments, right? He said, we are persuaded that good Christians will always be good citizens and that we're righteous this prevails among the individuals of the nation will be great and happy. Thus, while just government protects in all religious rights, true religion affords the government its sure support. Right? Because scripturally, we are supposed to respect the authority. And one more from our nation's first president. Let us, with caution, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion saying it's not, right? We got to be cautious. How can we maintain morality if there's no religious base for it? He says, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. He doesn't say religious principle, but he's saying there is an importance to religion and the freedom of it because if we squelch it, 
than the very principles of this nation, the very goodness of, of the people that support this nation and its government are at risk. And we've been taught that some of the first Europeans to arrive on the shores of what would become the United States of America came seeking religious freedom and relief from persecution for the religious beliefs and practices. And we can certainly conclude that the freedom of religion that was established in the Constitution was to defend against the imposition of one religion over another, especially as mandated by the federal government. And also the suppression of religion for any reason is, is, is prohibited. But I also believe we can be assured that there is a place for religion in this nation, and at the core of the laws and expectations for the citizens are the laws and commandments of God himself. Not as an oppressor, not as a God, of, but as, as one who is just trying to, to like, like I said, be an oppressor, but, but as a God of justice and order. About 100 years later, theologian Philip Schaff writes, freedom of religion is one of the greatest gifts of God to man. Without distinction of race and color, is the, he is the author and Lord of conscience, and no power on earth has a right to stand between God and the conscience. What do you think about that? Freedom of religion is one of the greatest gifts of God. Why would God, who's made it clear that he wants a personal relationship with us, right? He wants us back in his good graces. Why would he give us the opportunity and the ability to choose other than that for ourselves? We're going to take a look at that in a few moments. But first, we need to consider a growing sentiment that perverts the right to a freedom of religion to a freedom from religion. Thus, the name of this sermon, the proper preposition. In this new age, we've taken political correctness to extremes and, and the legitimate need to fight racism, because it is a legitimate need to fight racism and to fight social injustice. We've, we've taken that to a, a point of new and reversed racism and injustice in the name of reparations, right? Instead of being all equal, now we're trying to counter everything in such a way that we are no longer equal in, in, um, in other ways. And I find it somewhat ironic that Christianity is particularly targeted. Christianity is one of the very few religions in the world that preaches and teaches inclusiveness because that's what Jesus modeled. I came to save everyone. I came to accept everyone, right? Not just the rich, not the poor, not the white, not the black, whatever it is. I came for all of them. In fact, he was so good about that that he was often picked on for who he had dinner with and who he was trying to save, which included people like us. that point is an absolute commandment from God himself that we include everyone. All are welcome. Yet Gary Stagg, reverend and executive director of a, a, an organization called Open Doors, reports that freedom of religions is a fundamental human right. Sadly, the fundamental freedom is increasingly deteriorating with Christianity being the most persecuted religion in the world. You may not think about that. It's a bold statement, and I, I can't speak to its accuracy. I can't, but I can tell you that it's become unacceptable to discuss religion in the workplace. And we're, if we're being honest, how many of us have a hesitation about posting something openly religious on social media or fear the reaction or the label we get for doing so, right? If you are prohibited or even inhibited about your beliefs, then I say that you are not enjoying a freedom of religion or your expression of it, or it's free exercise, at least not as the authors of the Constitution intended it. And the one nation under God that was established now seems to have forgotten the importance of remaining under God, and we've forgotten the dire consequences of any person, group, or nation that operates outside of his will. And I'm not talking about plagues and famine, not necessarily, 
but perhaps it's something more subtle, like a moral decay, as evidenced through crime and social unrest. God won't destroy us. He, we have a good, good father, and he has made a covenant promise to us. But don't we want the full favor and the blessing of God, not only as a nation, but as individuals? His guidance and his protection. So coming full circle to my comments at the start of this message, we have a government of the people, by the people, that are elected representatives for the people. Don't you think it matters what side of moral and spiritual issues that those representatives are on and which side of the more so than, than which side of the aisle they're on, right? So know the issues at stake. Know where the candidates stand on them. Pray for wisdom, right, and discernment as you're making this decision. Vote for godly principles and godly people. Then pray that we again may be peaceably one nation, united under God. I want you to remember that what we learned last week, imposing your beliefs on others is not evangelism, right? And that's really what, what people are afraid of. Is you're just kind of come in there and, and condemn them and just impose you or enforce that on them. And that's not evangelism. But sharing the reason for the hope you have is not only legal, it's what we are called to do. Judging others because of, of our beliefs, based on our beliefs or understanding of God's will is not Christianity. You know Christianity? Loving everyone. That is Christianity. The truth is that God and his influence over, in, and through your life should influence your decisions. Everyone you make. Everyone you make. This includes how we structure, govern, serve, and protect ourselves and others, and how we elect those who are responsible to do so for us. And if I'm honest, I believe that we share in the responsibility for this backlash against religion. We have with very good intentions, I believe that we have with good intentions, done many aspects of Christianity wrong. We don't do evangelism properly. We, we judge, we withhold forgiveness, we're accepting of things that aren't right while we're not accepting of people that need love and inclusion the most. And I'm not just talking about people outside of Christianity, I'm talking about people within our own churches, within our own neighborhoods, within our own houses. It's true. Look at the slide on the screen. I didn't design these. I, these were easily found, and that breaks my heart, right? Save the planet with someone dropping a not, a, a, not a plastic cup and a trash can, but a Bible. You really think that's what it's going to take to save the planet, to get rid of the moral standard? How about this? I'm anti-religion. I'm not anti-religion. It says I'm anti-sexism, anti-racism, anti-gay hate, anti-women abuse. It says religion is anti-me. Isn't that horrible to think that that's what someone thinks that religion is about? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that anti-anything is, is okay, to hate anyone or anything, right? We don't hate the people. We don't like the sin. We don't accept the sin. We accept the person. And God says, all sins are equal, and I mean equally bad in his eyes. My, my sin of, of male pride, if I were to have it, no, no laughs, huh? Okay. My sin of male pride, <laughs> Sherry's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah is no different or better or worse than any of those other things that we judge other people for. I, I think with good intentions, we don't do it right. You've heard it said that you may be the only Jesus someone sees, right? But you may also be what they judge Jesus and his ministry and his followers by. Friends, we've got to do better. It begins with a decision. And, and next week, we're going to talk about that decision and message. I've, I've given it a working title of One Choice From Together, Right? Sometimes it's just one choice that's gonna, that keeps us from doing that. 
And as I begin to wind down this week's message, I want to turn to the Bible to understand what freedom truly is and why we, must possibly, we might possibly have been given this freedom. And of course, what we're to do with it. There's arguably no greater text on the topic of freedom than the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians that were becoming the early church in Galatia. And I want to give you a little context this morning. The people of Galatia, they were off to a pretty good start, right? They, they heard about Jesus. They're, you know, they're, they're curious. They're growing in their faith. But something happened. Something changed. And let's read Paul's letter, which began with a very warm greeting. And I love this. I wish we'd get back to this. The, the epistles and letters in, in those days started with the greeting and who you were. They weren't signed with your name. They were started with your name. So, so this is Galatians 1, starting verse 1 through 5. It says, Paul, an apostle, so he's saying this is his writing it, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. Well, that's a grand introduction, right? I'm Paul, but just in case you do not know who I am, I was sent by God and all the brothers and sisters with me. And he says, to the church in Galatia, this gives us the name of the book Galatians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a great start. It's a great start to a letter. Sounds pretty good. So let's continue. Verse 6. I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, then let them be under God's curse. It's harsh. This isn't just a verbal lashing for turning their back on God, but a warning of the dire consequences as a result. You see, the Christians of Galatia were surrounded and outnumbered by people who didn't understand or appreciate their religious, religious views and certainly wanted to prevent the spread of Christianity into that country's culture. Do you feel like that maybe sounds familiar? Paul knew the challenge that they faced, right? He had and he would continue to face it himself. The words he wrote next poses a question that is loaded with accountability. This is from verse 10. It says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. How would you answer that question? Last week we talked about evangelism and sharing the good news of the gospel. I know it takes a lot of courage to do so. So consider Paul's question as if it were posed to you. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? And he says, if I were still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Paul goes on to describe the people that were countering God's ministry in Galatia. This is from Galatians 4, 17. It says, those people are zealous to win you over, right? Passionate, excited, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. Zealous, Right? You ever heard someone say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something? Friends, it matters what you believe. Now I've set the stage for you. So we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5, the freedom chapter. Here we will discover God's purpose and plan for freedom and how our freedom of religion becomes a freedom made possible by religion. And it starts with a simple statement. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, he says, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now on the screen behind me are the words of Galatians 5.13. The, the common English version is at the top and it reads this way. It says, friends, you were chosen to be free. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do anything you want. Use it as an opportunity to serve each other with love. And very rarely will I reference the message paraphrase of the Bible, but there are times when the words it uses as a loose translation do a pretty good job of aiding in our understanding. So I'm going to share the same passage from the message paraphrase. It reads, It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you'll be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? It's a lot to take in there. Do you hear the words of warning that are just as true today as we battle to preserve our religious freedoms in this country? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Right? Yourself. It says, rather serve one another humbly in love. The two-sentence passage has three distinct parts to it. First is the gift of freedom. You were called. You were chosen to be free. It's God's plan. It's his desire for you. It was an intentional and loving act of God towards you through Jesus Christ. Not because of anything you did or did not do, but because of who he is. Second, there's a temptation that comes with free will, right? We have the choice to do whatever we want. The devil-edged sword, right? Patrick, you mentioned that this morning. So you have choices. And with that privilege comes an opportunity to make a bad choice. And also a responsibility to know the right choice and to make that as well. Freedom can become an opportunity. In fact, the Greek word means a springboard or, or base of operations, right? So freedom is an opportunity, a, a springboard for throwing off all moral restraints, and indulging in the lust of the flesh and thinking about yourself. When this has happened, freedom has been corrupted and then liberty isn't liberty anymore. Liberty is license, right? I don't have the freedom to do it. Now I've just been given authority to do whatever I want. Liberty and license aren't the same thing. And last, third, the selfless service of, of love. And I found it very interesting that the original Greek word for serve is remarkably close to the root word to mean slavery. That was a little unsettling to me. And, and, and this word, I mean, if you were to look at it in the original Greek, it's so close. Serve and slavery. And the difference in the freedom here is that we freely choose to serve others out of love. Not out of obligation, not out of compulsion or the result of force or duress, right? We aren't made to be a slave. We choose to serve. You are free to love and free to serve others. Church, what is holding us back? Paul's warning about not perverting the purpose of freedom is bracketed on one side by his reference to the divine call of the Galatians, right? You were called to be free. And on the other side, it's a reference to the positive alternative to license. You're free to do good. He says, instead, let love make you serve one another. It's from the Good News Translation. And as C.K. Barrett in his book, Freedom and Obligation Observed, he says, the opposite of flesh, right, is love. The opposite of ourselves is love. Love that looks away from the self as it wishes and even its real need to the neighbor 
and spend its resources on the neighbor's needs. Christian freedom is freedom to love and therefore a freedom to serve. Earlier in Galatians, Paul introduced the concept of freedom and love, but, but this is the first place where he brought these two words together in a single thought, that freedom and love go hand in hand. More than anywhere else, the freedom that results in the service of love is exemplified in the passion and death of Jesus Christ. Nowhere in his letters did Paul include an extensive description of Jesus' crucifixion. Have you thought about that? All the accounts of, of Easter are not found in, in Paul's letters. But it's still this recurring theme of his preaching. Yet the example of Christ's self-sacrificing love was paramount in Paul's ethics and his Christian life. It is the foundation for what he believed and thought and how he lived. Even there, he never specifically said, this is what happened on that day. As he wrote to the Philippians, this is in Philippians 2.5, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus was equal to Father from all eternity, yet freely chose to humble himself, becoming a servant, a slave. It is humiliation and death on the cross. For Paul, true religious freedom was centered in sharing the good news of the crucified and the resurrected Christ and what that means for those who accept it. Christ, what are we doing with our religious freedom? What are we going to do about it? I want to challenge that to make it our prayer this week. Would you join me, please? Heavenly Father, not only have you called us to be free, you created us to be free. You've given us free choice and liberty to do what we want. Not license and permission to go crazy and, and do that, but, but the freedom of choice so that we can choose of our own free will to love, to forgive, to teach, to accept. Lord, your word tells us that you forgive us. You forget our sins, our wrongdoings. And, and we struggle with that. We're like, how can this God who knows all and hears all and believes all and is everywhere, how can you possibly forget anything? It's because you are free to choose to do so. That takes so much more strength. So Lord, we ask for your strength as you give us this freedom. We ask for your strength to help us to exercise that freedom correctly in the choices we make in our lifestyle, the choices we make in those who represent us in this government that you tell us to follow and to respect the authority. Lord, we pray that this nation acts on your will, elects those who, who have your will and your service of, of mankind and love for others in mind. Lord, that this nation go in the direction that you have set aside for it. Lord, that there be peace and unification in the days ahead. Lord, not just this nation, but this world needs you in it. Please help us to do a good job of representing that need well and representing that service well to each other. Not by clobbering each other with the, 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 the Bible as a hammer, as a weapon to wield, as an offensive weapon, but as a, a defensive weapon against the world, against the scheme and discouragement of, of the one that would take away all the good that you have in store for us. Lord, give us the courage and confidence to make good decisions, to stand boldly for you and to make the right decision that leads to our, our gracious righteousness made possible not through anything we've done, but because of who you are. 
We thank you for this. We pray for our nation, all those who serve to protect it, all those who will be called to lead it in the years ahead. We thank you again that we are in this nation and we thank you that we have the ability to exercise this freedom. May it be protected and may this nation be blessed by you, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. Amen.